0: CDC recently reported the the results of a survey that showed that in the wake of COVID-19, 63% of American young adults between the ages of 18 and 24 report symptoms of anxiety or depression. Now, maybe a number like that doesn't surprise us anymore, but how about this? 25.5% of these young people said that they had seriously considered committing suicide in the 30 days prior to the survey. A quarter of young adults over the past several months say that they have seriously considered suicide. How is that not a crisis? So many young people living with an absence of hope how desperately, therefore, we need to hear the Apostle Paul's message of encouragement and hope in today's scripture. This is why he wrote these words. Look at verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What words? The words that Paul just wrote in verses 13 to 17 about the second coming, about our future resurrection, about our source of hope. Look at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. It's All Saints Sunday. It's the day in the life of our church, it's the day on our church calendar when we, the church, remember and celebrate the saints from this church who've died over the past year. I know some of you right now are rightly grieving. And please notice, Paul is not saying, I don't want you to grieve. Grieving at the loss of a loved one is good. Remember John chapter 11 when Jesus' friend Lazarus died? Even though Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do, even though he knew that in a matter of moments, He was going to call Lazarus up out of the tomb, and Lazarus would begin living again. What does Jesus do? He weeps. He grieves. So, WWJD, remember those bracelets? What would Jesus do when a loved one dies? He would weep. And he did weep when his good friend died. The fact that he also knew that he would see his friend again, even a few moments later, didn't change the fact. So when a loved one dies, even when the loved one is a believer, and we know that he's in heaven and we know we'll see him again, it is good and appropriate for us to grieve. Today's scripture gives us permission. Verse 13, Paul says that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We can sort of rearrange that sentence so that it's, it's put more positively like this. Grieve, Paul says, by all means, but do so as one who has real, genuine, authentic Christian hope, which ought to look different from the way the rest of the world grieves. But I get the temptation to grieve in the same way as the rest of the world. After all, I grew up immersed in popular culture, surrounded by unchristian or anti-Christian or downright pagan ways of understanding the meaning of death. For example, when I was 13, there was a smash hit song all over the radio airwaves, on the boomboxes and Walkman cassette players of my friends and family. It was Prince singing about the end of the world. He said, say, say, 2000 zero, zero, party over. Oops, out of time. So tonight, I'm going to party like it's 1999. In case you don't know the song, Prince was worried that in the year 2000, the world would come to an end, as if the year 2000 were anything next to the year 2020. Missed it by that much. (laughs) Just kidding. But you get the point. He was saying, you're running out of time to experience all the fun, all the excitement, all the hedonistic pleasures that this world has to offer. So you better get on it. Have as much fun as you can now because time is running out. That party will soon come to an end. You're on the clock. The clock is ticking. And speaking of clocks, back in 2014, a Swedish inventor, introduced a new watch called the Ticker, which purported to keep track of our ultimate deadline. Seriously, this watch not only told time, like all watches do, but it also told you how much time you had left to live, based on information that it gathered from a survey about your life, your health, your family history, your habits, etc. The inventor of the Ticker said that the purpose of the watch was not to depress anyone or to be morbid. Quite the opposite, he said. The ticker is the happiness watch. Because if we were more aware of our own expiration, he said, I'm sure we'd make better choices while we are alive. I notice by the way that there are apps on your smartphone you can download that do the same thing or purport to do the same thing. My point is all these products of our popular culture, songs, gadgets, apps, books, movies, TV shows, whatever, they often communicate the same message. Death is the worst thing. That can happen to any of us. Time is running out for us to make the most out of life. And when we die, we risk missing out on all the good stuff that, the li- that, that our life has to offer. And we will miss out on it forever. Needless to say, the believers at the church of Thessalonica, to whom Paul is writing, did not view death in this depressing, hopeless kind of way. They weren't afraid that death meant missing out on anything. Well, except for one thing. You see, they're afraid that their brothers and sisters in the church who have since died were going to miss out on the greatest event in human history, the second coming of Jesus Christ. After all, Since these departed saints are now dead and Christ hasn't returned yet, they won't be alive to witness this amazing event that Paul and the other apostles taught them about. And the Thessalonians are sad that their departed brothers and sisters are going to miss out. Sure, they'll be resurrected later after the second coming, But in the meantime, they'll miss out. So what does Paul say to them in response? First, let's not be confused by Paul's use of the word sleep or asleep in verses 13 and 15. Some Christians, not many Christians, but enough to make me have to talk about it now, they misinterpret that word and they say that Paul is referring to something they call soul sleep. Maybe you've heard that term. According to this belief, when we Christians die, we are simply dead until the second coming and the general resurrection of the dead when we're given new bodies. So you die, and your next moment of consciousness is the second coming and the resurrection. But no... That cannot possibly be what Paul means here. Consider what Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we will be at home with the Lord. Sometimes you'll see funeral bulletins that will say homecoming service instead of funeral service. And that's not wrong theologically. Paul says that when we are absent from the body, if we're a believer, then that means we are at home with the Lord. That happens immediately following the death of a believer. I've said this before, but for a Christian, death is merely a transition from life to a greater kind of life. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 1. Paul is in prison. He doesn't know whether he'll live or die. He'll be martyred. But he says in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For a Christian, dying at the end of your life is even better than living, Paul says, because dying means experiencing even more of Christ. So Paul himself is torn He doesn't know which he would prefer. In verse 23, he writes, I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. It's because he knows that if he's with Christ after death... He'll get to be in a closer relationship with Jesus than he can possibly experience on this side of death. Or how about this as more evidence? In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. It's a picture of heaven and hell happening right now. Not in the future, at the end of history, after the second coming, but right now. Why do I say this? Because the rich man who is in torment in hell, the Bible says, asks Father Abraham to send Lazarus, who is in heaven, um, the bosom of Abraham, as it's called there, to send him to his five living brothers, to warn them about the hell that he is currently experiencing and that they themselves will be in danger of experiencing. Or, how about the thief on the cross in Luke 23, when this man who was being crucified next to Jesus repents and believes in him? Jesus says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Today, not thousands of years into the future after Christ returns and believers are resurrected, but today. All that to say, when Paul is using the word sleep, he is referring to the intermediate state between our death and our future resurrection. Right now, our loved ones who have died in Christ are separated from their bodies, but they are with Christ right now in spirit they are experiencing christ right now they are closer to christ right now than any of us on earth can be these departed saints are not dreaming they're awake they're fully conscious and alive right now with jesus paul tells us that not only will these saints not miss out on the second coming, but look at verse 14. Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, keep in mind, Paul is painting with word pictures. He's using figurative poetic language to describe what happens at the second coming. I don't think any of us should be overconfident about what exactly the second coming will look like or what it will sound like when it happens, because the reality of the second coming goes beyond words. But make no mistake, we can and should be very confident that the second coming Will happen. So, according to this breathtaking word picture that Paul is painting, Christ descends from heaven and he brings with him all the departed saints, all those who have died in Christ. They will immediately be given new resurrected bodies, in other words, their souls will be reunited with their bodies, except this time their bodies won't wear out or get sick or suffer injury or death. They'll have bodies that last forever, just like Jesus has a resurrected body that lasts forever. Paul's point is that these saints who've died before us will be the first ones to receive these new resurrected bodies, and the first ones to experience the second coming of Christ. They'll be the first ones to be caught up with Jesus in the clouds and meet him in the air. And then those of us who were left on earth at the time of the second coming, our bodies will be transformed. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and then we will join those saints who've gone ahead of us and we will all be with jesus forever no believer in jesus is missing out on anything paul says and we should therefore encourage one another with these words so do we find these words encouraging or do we find them a little fearful (laughs) I've asked around over the years, and most Christians I've talked to say that they find these words a little fearful. If we're Christians and we find them fearful, this is probably why. Because Paul says, don't grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul doesn't say don't grieve as others who think they have no hope. Or don't grieve as others whose hope is in the wrong God or God's. But as soon as they die, God will show them the truth and they'll be okay. No, according to Paul, there are people who are dying without hope because they don't know Jesus They they haven't been saved. They're still in their sins. With these words, Paul is closing the door on any path to the Father other than the narrow gate and the hard way that leads through his son Jesus to eternal life. And that's what scares us because we know and love some of these people who aren't on this narrow path and this hard way. If Christ returns today, well, That Prince song I mentioned earlier isn't completely wrong. Party over, oops, out of time. They will have no more time to get right with God. And it's for their sake, I think, that so many of us present-day Christians hope that Christ doesn't return anytime soon. Because we know that we're not ready. Because even though we're saved, we know that we need to do more to share the gospel with lost people, to warn lost people, to lead lost people into a saving relationship with God through Christ. So if we're Christians, how do we move beyond this fear of the second coming to anticipation, joyful anticipation of the second coming. We do exactly what the Thessalonians did. Listen to what Paul writes about these normal, average, everyday Thessalonian Christians. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Or chapter 2, verse 14, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the religious leaders in Judea. Paul goes on to say in chapter 3 that he was worried that because of the great affliction the Thessalonians were facing on account of their faith, Satan would, would, would tempt them to abandon the Christian faith. On the contrary, Paul writes, they've become famous everywhere throughout all of Greece for being faithful to God and his mission. Listen, When you forget about yourself and your own concerns and the cares of this world and instead dedicate your life to the things of God, to his kingdom, to fulfilling the great commission that Christ has given you the way these Thessalonians did, well, good things start happening You fall in love with Jesus more. You trust in him more. You experience more of his grace, more of his love, more of his power. And you think, man, I can't wait to get caught up with Jesus in the clouds and to meet him in the air. I can't wait for the second coming because I can't wait to see Jesus face to face. That's what I'm living for. Uh, That's what I want more than anything Brothers and sisters, I want you to want that because that's where you'll find true and lasting happiness. But we modern day Christians hear about the Thessalonians' faithfulness in the face of affliction, and we often think, we don't know affliction like that. We don't know persecution and suffering the way they did. We live in the buckle of the Bible Belt. We have the First Amendment. We enjoy religious freedom under our Constitution. Unlike these Thessalonians, we are very comfortable. But not so fast. I mean, it's true we're comfortable. But I would argue that we're not comfortable because we have the First Amendment and the Constitution guarantees religious freedom? After all, suppose we lived instead under some totalitarian regime and some lawless dictator told us at gunpoint, I'll let you go to church and I'll let you worship at church and I'll let you preach at church, and I'll let you study the Bible at church. I'll let you do whatever you want to do within the walls of church. But don't you dare take it outside the walls of church. Don't you dare share the gospel of Jesus Christ with anyone outside of church, Don't you dare tell anyone about Jesus outside of church. Don't you dare try to witness to anyone outside of church. If that happened, brothers and sisters, be honest with me. How many of us would know the difference? And I'm asking myself this too. My point is, we're not comfortable because of all these great religious, this great religious freedom that our constitution affords, which I cherish and thank God for. We're comfortable because unlike these normal average everyday Christians at Thessalonica, we're not being as faithful as we should be in fulfilling the Great Commission. Don't misunderstand. I'm a wimp. I hope that we never experience affliction and suffering and persecution on account of our faithfulness to the gospel. But I do hope that we'll risk stepping outside of our comfort zones for the sake of the gospel. Amen? A few years ago, a 20-year-old young woman named Maggie, a friend of my daughter's, died after a long battle with cancer. Shortly before she died, as she lay unconscious in hospice care, her parents posted the following on their blog about their daughter's imminent death. Here's what they wrote. And it is after all, a transition. We're walking her home as far as we're allowed. Her faith is firm and secure. Her mansion is ready. Where would we be without the promises of God? Don't find yourself on the brink of what the world would say is the worst thing to happen to a parent without a rock-hard grip on the promises of God's word. Don't. We know her healing is close, closer than any treatment or surgery could ever bring her. Her healing will be complete. Her future is secure. She will be free. We're walking her home as far as we're allowed. God, in other words, is sovereign over this process of their daughter's life and death. Whereas death may be unexpected to us, it's never unexpected to God. Listen to Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Therefore, before any of us was conceived in the womb, and by extension, before time existed for all eternity, God knew exactly how long each one of us will live. He knew how we will die. And in his wisdom, He at least allows death to happen in the way that it happens for dozens, hundreds, possibly thousands of reasons, the vast majority of which we will never understand on this side of eternity. But God does know and we can trust that God knows best. As Paul says in Ephesians, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, you may object to this biblical view of God's sovereignty. Some Christians do. But how can it be otherwise? Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. If the life and death of even a humble, seemingly insignificant creature like a sparrow matters to our Father, Jesus implies. How much more does your own life and death matter to him? And when that time comes for each of us, and it will come unless the second coming happens first. But when it comes, our hope is secure. We lose nothing. We gain everything, and we will always be with the Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Tocoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Tacoa First. We have live in-person worship every week, and we also have online worship. Please see ToccoaFirstUMC.org for more information.